first reading is from Matthew 1, um, 1 to 17, and it's on page 471, as you can see on the screens. Uh, Here's the word of the Lord. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Aminadab, and Aminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asaph, and Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, and Joram the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah the father of Jotham, and Jotham the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh the father of Amos, and Amos the father of Josiah, and Josiah the father of Jeconiah and his brothers, at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abiud, and Abiud the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Akim, and Akim the father of Eliud, and Eliud the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of Matan, and Matan the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So to all the uh, so all the generations from Abraham to David were fourteen generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon fourteen generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to Christ. 14 generations. In a hole in the ground, there lived a hobbit. Can anyone tell me where that comes from? The hobbit? You'd think so, but no. Lord of the Rings. You'd get it. <laughs> Look, as far as opening lines that get you interested in the story that you're about to read, then J.R.R. Tolkien's epic uh, in The Lord of the Rings... Sorry, epic. The book is epic, not the first line. But the first line, I mean, that's, that's one of the classics, right? Every good story begins with a compelling opening line. I'm not sure that the same could be said for Matthew's gospel. At least, most of us today would think that, right? Matthew's long list of names... Uh, to trace Jesus' genealogy back to Abraham. I mean, if we're honest, that's a snore fest for most of us today. And that's because most, if not all, of us today are not Jews. At least here. For the Jew, though, this was exactly what you wanted to hear about Jesus. 
The Jews had been waiting for hundreds of years for the seed of Abraham who would fulfill the promise God gave to him and the son of David, the one who would sit on his throne. This opening, not just the opening line, but this whole opening section, this genealogy in Matthew 1 is compelling reading for the Jew. And that's why this opening is so significant. And it sets the tone for the rest of the book. The rest of the gospel of Matthew was likely written to a mostly Jewish Christian audience who wanted these questions answered. Matthew's concern was to show how this Galilean carpenter who was roaming the countryside for three years, teaching and performing miracles, who would then die on a Roman cross only to rise three days later, was the promised one that their scriptures prophesied about, the one the prophets longed to know. So as we read Matthew together, as we continue to read the next uh, six chapters, we're going to find that some of it sounds foreign to our ears. Or some of it will wonder about why that was included or uh, why there was such an emphasis on that or why some Jewish practice or term is not explained. And we're going to unpack that as we preach through it over the coming months. But uh, we're going to, as we spend this morning reading through these chapters, it's important for us to remember that the Christ that we worship, the Christ that we sing about, that we gather and hear about, that we pray to, whose gospel we believe and we proclaim to the world, well, he didn't just drop out of the sky and give us that gospel unattached to anything before him. It was not a message that just suddenly appeared. No, Christ's gospel came in the context of thousands of years of history and practice and belief. And it came as a fulfillment of the word of God that had already been given up to that point. So as we read these first seven chapters, listen for that. Listen for the way that Matthew takes great care to show how the event of Jesus' birth and early ministry echoes or has direct fulfillment from the Old Testament. And as you do, consider what perhaps some of your own presuppositions or assumptions that you bring to the text might be and how these might change knowing what Matthew is seeking to achieve. This Jesus... This Christ, whom we worship as Savior and Lord, is the one that God's people of old had longed for, for so long. And now he was finally here. Imagine the joy of that. Imagine the, the ecstasy of that thousands-year-long wait finally arriving. The climax of history being born to a teenage Jewish virgin named Mary. No wonder those who recognized who he was rejoiced. Just as those who recognize who he is today still rejoice. We're going uh, now to read the rest of chapter 1 and see how Jesus' birth announces his coming as the one the prophets longed to know, the promised Messiah that Israel hoped for. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. 
When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Then her husband Joseph, being a man, a just man, and unwilling to put her name to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All who took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. They shall name him Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called him's name Jesus. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it was, is written of, by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judea, are by no means least among the rulers of Judea, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them the time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star they had seen when it rose before them came until they came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt, and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, Out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem, and in all that region who were two years old and under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation. Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, 
saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. Like a pharaoh of old, ironically, from the land of Egypt that Joseph and Mary then fled to, Herod slaughtered all the young boys in a small town, aged under two, in an attempt to destroy God's chosen one. One of the more sobering passages in Scripture. But just like Pharaoh, Herod could not thwart God's plan. And as Matthew repeatedly shows in this chapter, this is a plan that has been woven throughout the pages of the Old Testament. Even in passages that might not seem like they speak directly to the life and events of Jesus. You see, this sometimes trips people up because they they read the Old Testament, they read uh, these passages that Matthew is quoting, and they say, hang on, if you go back to the Old Testament to read that, that's, that's not speaking about Jesus. Now, they're saying that he's actually speaking about something completely different. And so they, they think hey, they want to read it more like, you know, a manual for how to operate a fridge. There's very little literary artistry in an operation manual. If any, I'm not even sure you could say there's any artistry. I don't know if anybody's ever tried to read one for, to see how great the literature is. Uh, the opening line on my fridge's operation manual is, before operating this unit, please read this manual thoroughly and retain for future reference. Uh, I, I, as far as you know, opening lines go, you know you're not about to embark on a New York Times bestseller, right? When that's the first thing you read. I know that the the Spirit-inspired author of this gospel, in quoting all of these Old Testament texts that we just read and saying that they are fulfilled in the events and in the life of Jesus, those are not a slapdash collection of Old Testament proof texts that he just cobbled together to try and bolster his case that Jesus was the Messiah. No, Matthew has carefully considered the message of the Old Testament and what it is pointing to in its words that go even deeper than the immediate or the surface meaning of those texts. That's what he has done. That's why he can say at the very end of that passage, and it will be fulfilled, he was called a Nazarene, even though you won't find that even anywhere in the Old Testament. We'll talk about that when we get to it. And so as one of the inspired authors of Scripture, personally, I'd rather trust his reading of the Old Testament than my own. Brothers and sisters, do we read God's Word this way? Do we take our lead from the authors of the New Testament in how to understand and interpret the Old Testament? 
Let me encourage you this morning. You can mine God's word. It is full of treasure after treasure, each one in some way, adding to the greatness and the glory of the gospel. The more we read Scripture with this understanding, the more it comes alive, even the genealogies. And the more we understand why Matthew quotes the passages that he does. Keep pressing deeper into this deposit that God has given us. Because even though my fridge manual is not a brilliant piece of literature, it actually has a great instruction for us to heed and apply God's Word. Read it thoroughly and retain it for future reference. I hope, though, that we don't do with the Bible what we do with operation manuals and just put them in the drawer, never to be seen again until there's a problem. May we continue to read it thoroughly and keep coming back to it in the future to feed our souls and to know God more. And the central thread of Scripture, as Matthew makes clear in this chapter, is that all of it points to Christ. May we feed on Him and grow in the knowledge of God as Christ is illuminated for us by His Spirit in its pages. Picking up from Matthew chapter 3. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of the one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the, and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptised by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, "'You brood of vipers!' Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptise you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptise you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptised by him. John would have prevented him saying I need to be baptized by you and you come to me but Jesus answered him let it be so now for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness then he consented and when Jesus was baptized immediately he went up from the water and behold the heavens were opened to him and he saw the spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him and behold a voice from heaven said this is my beloved son, with whom I am well pleased. I remember hearing about uh, the late 
theologian R.C. Sproul asking a class of seminary students, who was the last Old Testament prophet? What would you say? Don't give away the answer. I remember, I remember thinking to myself when I heard that, uh, you know, it, it depends what you mean by last. In, if, if we're talking about the last in the way our Old Testament books are arranged, well, then I would go with Malachi. But if you're talking about the last to have prophesied and died on the timeline, then I have no idea off the top of my head. Well, it turns out it was a bit of a trick question. And if you heard Braden's response, the answer was John the Baptist. Now, sure, you could argue that John the Baptist isn't in the Old Testament, and so therefore he can't qualify for that description, and you would be correct. But you see, his point was that what made a prophet an Old Testament prophet was that they prophesied before the coming of the Messiah. And John's role as prophet was even more significant than the previous ones. He would be the one who would actually prepare the way for the Lord. And John the Baptist, he pops up a bit throughout the Gospel of Matthew. And not just in the narrative, but also in Jesus' own words. And in this chapter, we see a significant moment. John was, has been... Uh, baptizing uh, people in the River Jordan with the baptism of repentance. And when Jesus asks John to baptize him, John knows exactly who he is. And he says, no, no, this is not how it's supposed to go. It should be the other way around. You should be baptizing me. But this is the changing of the guard. The old covenant is about to make way for the new. And so here, Jesus is baptized in a kind of inauguration of his ministry. You notice he doesn't... uh, I remember watching a a Jesus film, there are so many of them, and there was this moment in it where uh, Jesus says, John, will you baptize me? And John says to him, if you confess your sins. And Jesus just nods. And my dad, who was in the room, was like, oh, that's garbage. (laughs) And I was like, what? Why? And he's like... Jesus didn't sin. <laughs> he, would not, he would not assent to that. And you see that in the text, don't you? Jesus doesn't, John doesn't say that to him, nor does Jesus say, you need to baptize me because I need to repent. No, he says, let it be so this way to fulfill all righteousness. It's a kind of inauguration of Jesus' ministry. And it's confirmed by this incredible Trinitarian picture to close chapter 3. The Spirit of God descends on Jesus like a dove, and God the Father speaks from heaven to say, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. What a moment. Imagine witnessing that. The triune God manifesting himself in sight, sound, and touch all in an instant. You get the sense that this is a significant moment, which of course it is. 
up to this point in Scripture, we have read about the preparation for Jesus' ministry. And now that ministry is about to begin. But one thing has to happen first. Matthew chapter 4. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, Again, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. The devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. The devil. Satan. Or Satan. The adversary, the serpent, the great dragon, the prince of the power of the air, the god of this age, the evil one, the prince of demons, the accuser, the tempter, the father of lies. The one who first tempted the first human beings, Adam and Eve, in the Garden of Eden by making them question God's word and twisted it in service of his own evil plans. That's him. Thousands of years later, nothing has changed. He is still twisting God's word for his own evil plans. That's because lying is part of his nature. Half-truths are his specialty. He can't help but take something true and good and spin it in such a way that it sounds reasonable, but in reality is a pit of death. Brothers and sisters, when you see half-truths paraded around like this, be on your guard. 
It is far too easy for sinful people who have been hoodwinked by the devil to spin the word of God and to make it say what they want to say. And not only that, but to make it sound plausible. So how do we fight the tempter? How do we combat his lies and his half-truths? Well, we let the word itself speak. As I mentioned to you in my preparation for my sermon on the book of Judges a few weeks ago, it's amazing how careful, attentive, and intentional reading of the Bible yields such great fruit in knowing the truth. And this makes sense, doesn't it? Jesus, with his first of three quotations from the book of Deuteronomy, basically sets up what his response to the tempter will be throughout this whole test. When he quotes Deuteronomy 8.3 and says, Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Life, real and true life, comes from and through the word of God. At every challenge, at every test that the devil brings to Jesus, Jesus responds with God's word. And in this case, all from the book of Deuteronomy. The same is true for us. We live not by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. I wonder if Jesus had in mind here what he would later say and that we read about in John 6, him being the bread of life. Or perhaps what he would do in Matthew 26 when he institutes the Lord's Supper as a remembrance for his body given for us and the new covenant in his blood. Brothers and sisters, that is the very truth that we remember every time we partake of the Lord's Supper. We do not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. If you're visiting this moment, morning, in a moment we're going to take communion together. And if this is true for you, if you have turned from your sin and trusted in Christ for salvation, recognizing that life comes from hearing and receiving and responding to God's word, then I thank God that you are with us today. And because communion is a communal meal, our church's practice is to open it up to those who are part of another local communion. That is, if you've been baptized as a believer into membership of another church that preaches this very gospel of salvation from sin through repentance and faith in Christ Jesus, then please join with our church as we remember Christ in His supper this morning. But if that is not you, then please observe and let me encourage you to feed on Christ in your heart to chew on the Word of God that we've heard so far from Matthew's Gospel and to consider the real and true life that comes from it. And in particular, 
If you're a guest this morning and you do not know Christ as Savior and Lord, then I want to invite you to consider Christ today. Only He can save His people from their sins. Only He can give His life as a ransom for us, as He would say later on in this gospel. And please come and talk to me or one of our members here afterwards about that. We eat the bread of life. And as we eat the bread and drink the cup this morning, we remember that it is in Christ that we live. It is as we feed on His words, on His message, on His gospel, on Him, that we receive true life. We're going to continue reading through Matthew. And Glenn's going to come and continue that as we turn from the preparation for Jesus' coming and commissioning of Jesus' ministry and move into the calling of His disciples and the beginning of that teaching ministry itself. In this sort of second half, There'll be some time for us to read Scripture together. We'll be led through that out loud. We'll also have an opportunity toward the end to be responsive ourselves in prayer as well as we do that together out loud. So let's continue to hear from God's Word. From verse 12. Now when he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light, and those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately, they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two older brothers, Sorry, two other brothers, James the son of Zebedee and John his brother, in the boat with Zebedee their father, mending their nets, and he called them. Immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, epileptics, and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis, and from Jerusalem and Judea, and from beyond the Jordan. Did you catch that pivotal moment in verse 17? Jesus returns from the temptation in the wilderness. He withdraws into Galilee after John was arrested. He fulfills Isaiah as he roams around the area. And then this. From that time, 
Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus would obviously say and do many other things throughout his ministry, which is largely what makes up the book of Matthew. But here, he is proclaiming the core of his message, what Mark in his gospel would call the good news. And that's what the word gospel means. It's the same message that John the Baptist proclaimed that we saw in Matthew chapter 3, verse 2. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And it's what Jesus would tell his disciples to go and proclaim later on in the gospel in Matthew 10, verse 7. This is at the core of Jesus' ministry. Repent and believe the good news. Now, Jesus then calls some of his disciples and word spreads about his teaching and the miracles he's performing. So the crowds, they start to build. And as we read in verse 1 of chapter 5, seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And so we now come to one of the most well-known parts of Jesus' teaching in the Gospels, the Sermon on the Mount. Well, let me uh, invite you to stand and read aloud together with me the Beatitudes from verses 3 to 12. Uh, I'll read the first couple of verses and then we'll read them together. Please stand. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. 
For truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly, I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you, And do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You, therefore, must be perfect, as your heavenly Father 
is perfect. You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. I don't know about you, but that doesn't sound like good news to me. In, in my early days, I would often describe my wife, before she was my wife, as perfect. It was a little bit tongue-in-cheek, but there was a part of me that really believed it. Until we, married Until we got married. None of us are perfect. Talk about setting high expectations. We have just sung to and about the thrice holy God, the one Isaiah saw in a vision surrounded by seraphim, calling out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Isaiah himself lamented his uncleanness as he stood in God's presence. He recognized his significant imperfection in the perfect presence of a perfect God. How could Jesus possibly ask this of his followers? And how could he say that their righteousness must exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees in order to enter the kingdom of heaven? Those guys were the teachers of the law. They were so righteous that they even tithed their mint and their dill and their cumin. They paid attention to the finest points of the law. Throughout the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus takes what was considered righteous observance of the law and he raises the expectation. You think murder is bad? I say to you, but even a little bit of anger in your heart against somebody makes you liable to judgment. Adultery, even lusting over someone condemns you. Love your neighbor. I say to you, love your enemies. Those who oppress and persecute you, those who slander and attack you, those who withhold privileges and positions from you because of me. Love them. Perfection is necessary in order for you to be able to stand in God's presence. Just as Isaiah's sin needed to be atoned for in order for him to survive... So must ours. Friends, that is the good news. That Jesus Christ atones for our sin. The standard of holiness, the standard of perfection is one that not a single human being in the history of all of humankind could keep bar one. And it is in repenting and turning from our sin and believing in Him 
and trusting in the gospel for salvation that we may be declared holy. We receive His holiness, His righteousness, while He receives our unrighteousness. The Sermon on the Mount shows us the righteousness and the perfection that we strive for, the standard of holiness that God demands, and reminds us that were it not for God's grace in Jesus, were it not for His atonement for our sin, then we would be lost before we even started. Friends, recognize that by your own strength, And by your own ability, you cannot attain perfection. Right standing before God comes as a work of His grace, of His salvation. Repent and turn to Jesus, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. I'm going to read for us Matthew chapter 6. May I invite you to join me with... The words of the Lord's Prayer read out loud together in the middle of this. Matthew 6, beginning at verse 1. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray... You must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Pray then like this. Join with me. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive you your trespasses. And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. 
Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. No one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body. What you will put on is not life more than food and the body more than clothing. Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet, I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat? Or, What shall we drink? Or, What shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Judge not, that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when there is a log in your own eye, you hypocrite, First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. 
and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? So, whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. For this is the law and the prophets. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will, be recognize, you will recognize them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came. And the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. I've recognized recently that um, I use the word foundation a lot when it comes to talking about the Christian life. I think it's because not only is it biblical, but it's such a great way to think about it. And it's such a fitting way for Jesus to finish his sermon on the mount. The one who builds their life on what he says, on his words, is like a person who builds a house on a solid rock, on a firm foundation. Yes, we, it's true that we build our lives on Him, the cornerstone, and we'll, we'll sing about that in a moment. But part of what that means is to build on His words. Friends, you will find no surer foundation than Jesus. 
People might tell you that you're a fool for building your life on an outdated, outmoded, 2,000-year-old book. But the truth is that to build your life on other people's words, whether it's those of contemporary professionals or dear friends or even wise parents, is to build your life with a foundation of sand. That's because Jesus' words are God's words. His words are manna from heaven. His words are bread for living. His words are words of eternal life. His words convict, His words build up, His words proclaim His good news, and His words call you and me to repentance and trust in Him. If you'll let Him, His words will be the opening line, the middle line, and the final line of your story. Will you build your life on them? Let's pray, and then we will sing together to finish. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this gospel of Matthew that you have given us and the many treasures that uh, we've, we've really only just skimmed the surface of this morning. Father, I pray that as we continue to meditate on it and on the rest of your word, Lord, please remind us Help us by your Holy Spirit to build our lives upon them so that when the rains come, when the storms come, our houses may not collapse, but instead stand firm and rejoice in your salvation. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.